Okay, Apostles' Creed. So we are in our fifth week of the Apostles' Creed series. And, and really, just to, just to kind of give you some background, some refresher for those who are new, maybe what are we doing, why are we going through the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest creeds of the Christian faith. And it really is a, 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 um, a reduced-down version of what, uh, what the foundational truths of, of the Christian faith are. What do we confess? A creed is a confession. So this would have been compiled around three to 400 A.D., uh, after the resurrection of Christ. And so we're, we're studying Scripture. We're using the Apostles' Creed as a framework to then go to Scripture and say, well, Christians throughout history have affirmed the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. They've affirmed that he was virgin-born. They've affirmed that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. They've affirmed all these things, and this is exactly what Scripture says. So this is what we're doing with the Creed. And today, we're looking at the pinnacle of Christianity. We're looking at the confession that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He literally died, as we studied last week, dead, buried, crucified, dead, and buried. He really died, but then he really rose. So would you go uh, to prayer with me uh, as we look at a message I've titled, Death is Swallowed Up in Victory. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to preach your word. And Lord, I just pray that, that we would be ready to hear. Our hearts would be receptive and that we would receive with glad hearts the truth of your word that has the power to transform our lives. And God, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So J.I. Packer, he wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed. And I've got two or three books that were written by different theologians. And they're, they're using the Apostles' Creed as a as a way to launch from and to study from. And in his book on the Apostles' Creed, this is what J.I. Packer says. The Jesus of the Gospels can still be your hero, but he cannot be your savior if he did not rise. That is profound. Because a lot of people look at Jesus in the Bible, a man of history, undeniably a man of history that literally died, and it's unmistaken that no matter whether you're a Christian historian or a secular Historian, you will not deny that Jesus lived and died. You may deny that he rose from the dead on the third day, but many people will look at Jesus and say, he's a, he's a good hero. Look at his life. He was so good to people and kind to people, and he was compassionate and merciful and gracious, and he taught us a good way to live. But he can, he can be your hero in that way, but he can't be your Savior and your Lord if he did not rise from the dead. Christianity rises or it falls on the doctrine, the confession that Jesus rose on the third day. This is why it's significant. Not just at Easter do we talk about the resurrection, but, but this, is what, this is why we gather the week after Easter and the week after that and the week after that because he really did rise. We don't just go to church once a year. We go to church on every Sunday as the Lord gives us the, the energy and strength to do because we're worshiping a risen Savior. That's what we confess and the church has confessed that. For centuries and centuries, for thousands of years. And so the Apostle Paul puts it like this. J.I. Packer, that's the summary version. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, what I'm doing right now, is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died or fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them. If in Christ 
If it's in Christ that we have hope, and it's only in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying, if our hope in Christ is only in this life, and he really didn't rise, and there's no hope after death for eternal life, then we're dead in our sins, and we have no hope for eternity. And we are of all people to be pitied. Because we declare every week, the risen Christ, the risen Christ, the risen Christ. So today what I want to do is, I want to do, I want to do two things. We're going to read an account from Luke 24, one of the four Gospels accounts of the resurrection. And we're going to do two things after I read it. We're going to look at the evidences, some evidences for the resurrection. We're going to have four evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the validity of the resurrection. And then secondly, we're going to look at, okay... We see the evidence is what are the implications? And we're going to look at two implications of the resurrection of Christ. And I just want to say this before we get to the evidences. If you're here today and you're skeptical of the resurrection, in, in no way are these all the evidences of the resurrection because we would need to do a seminar on that. But if this does anything for you as a skeptic, I would pray that it would cause you to want to investigate further. Because there are great resources out there if you're a skeptic and, you're, and you doubt the, the trustworthiness of Scripture or you doubt the trustworthiness of the account of history concerning the resurrection of Christ. There's lots of great resources. Uh, Josh McDowell is one of them and, and Lee Strobel is another brother. There's others like them that, that, that defend the faith of Jesus Christ and defend the doctrines of the faith, in particular the resurrection of Christ. So let's read Luke 24 and then we'll dive into those two things. It says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while, we, while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them to be an idle tale, a tall tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and John went with him, as we see in the Gospel of John. And they ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is an account, one account of the resurrection of Christ. So what are the evidences? This is the first thing. Four evidences for the validity of the resurrection. And you may think when I tell you the first evidence, you're going to think, well, how is this an evidence for the resurrection? So I'm going to explain it to you that one of the first evidences for the resurrection is that Jesus really did die. You can't rise from the dead unless you are first dead. And you would think, well, that's, that's common sense. You don't rise from the dead unless you're dead. But throughout history, throughout the res- since the history of the resurrection, people have attacked the reality of Jesus' literal death. And they said, well, Jesus really didn't die. That's, well, so, you know, that will explain that he really didn't rise from the dead because he really didn't die. Well, one of the great evidences that he actually died is that he was crucified. And, and, and look, you can look at Christian historians and theologians, and they will, they will tell you what Scripture says about the death of Christ. 
but you can talk to, to agnostic, atheistic scientists and theologians and historians, and they will tell you, history tells us, not just from biblical records, but from secular records, it was confirmed that Jesus of Nazareth lived and he was crucified by Roman soldiers. It was proven. Now, one of the, one of the theories of Jesus' death as a way to disprove his resurrection is called the swoon theory. And this is the idea behind the swoon theory. The swoon theory is an idea that Jesus, because of what he went through through Roman crucifixion, he passed out, he fainted, and went into kind of like a coma-type state. And he was just kind of out of it. And they assumed he was dead. They wrapped his body, as you read in Luke 24, put spices on his body, and they put him in the tomb, they laid him there, but he really wasn't dead, and he gained, regained consciousness. This is a literal theory that intelligent people, so-called, say. But the problem with the Suen theory is really obvious. The problem with the idea that Jesus, whatever the theory is, whether it's the Suen theory or any other type of theory that Jesus really didn't die, but that he was still put in the tomb, is that if you know anything about Roman crucifixion, in history, and what they did to people that were crucified, no one would ever believe that if Jesus was literally crucified by the Romans, that he survived. There's no account in history that's written in any ancient text that says that anybody survived a Roman crucifixion. Why? Because the Romans knew what they were doing. They were like the mafia of crucifixion, right? <laughs> they knew what they were doing. When they went to crucify somebody, they didn't leave him half dead. And they, 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 they double-checked that he was dead. So if you don't want to believe me and you don't want to believe history, maybe you could believe a doctor, right, who study, doctors who study history, right? So th- there's, there's a medical journal called the Journal of the American Medical Association. The, so this is a peer-reviewed journal of medical professionals, and they did a study on whether Christ really died. Did Jesus really die? Let's do a study. Let's look at history. Let's look. Okay, we, we affirmed Jesus really lived. We affirmed he really died. It was through Roman crucifixion. Let's, let's study if he really died. And this is their statement in the, in the journal. It says, Clearly the weight of the evidence points to the fact that Jesus had died even before the wound to his side had been inflicted. The evidence is overwhelming from unbiased. A lot of these people in, in this journal would not be Christians. They say from their study that Jesus really died. Now let's think about it. If he, re- if he was not dead, he just passed out. Can you imagine if he survived crucifixion? He's, he's unrecognizable as a male or a female. He's been ripped to shreds. He's lost almost all the blood in his body. And he's put in a tomb. And the tombstone that they rolled over the tomb would have been between two and 3,000 pounds. Do you believe that that type of, that the person like that has been through the type of agony and torture that Jesus had been through could get up and roll that tomb away? Roll that stone away. Doesn't make sense. The evidence of history, this is really great evidence of history, that Jesus really did die. It wasn't a fake death. He literally, physically died. But here's the problem. Any attempt, this is what they do when they attempt to discredit the resurrection. To, to any attempt to discredit the resurrection by saying Jesus really didn't die is an attempt to answer the question of the empty tomb. That's why you discredit the death. Why? Because the tomb was empty. If the tomb was not empty, why discredit the death? If the body was still there, no one would argue that he died or didn't die. Yeah, he's dead. He's there. But the reason they have to discredit the death is because the tomb really was empty. And that's the second evidence for the resurrection. The tomb is empty. It's still 
not found the bones of Jesus Christ because it, he was risen. It's an empty tomb. This is a great evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The body of Jesus, Scripture tells us, and actually in the Old Testament, a prophecy pointing hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, it said that the Messiah would be crucified, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And in fact, that's where Jesus was buried. History tells us, Scripture tells us, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And if you know anything about a rich man's tomb in in ancient Roman times, it wouldn't have been a tomb that was obscure. It wouldn't have been a tomb that was off in the middle of nowhere. It would have been a tomb that was in the middle of, a, of an area that would have been known to, to, to be a place where you would bury bodies. Because this was a rich man's tomb. They could afford to have a tomb that was prominent. So when Jesus was crucified and he really died, he went into a tomb that would, would have been recognizable and would have been known. And it could have been easily refuted that he really didn't die. Because it would have been known where his body was placed. And so Roman soldiers, so as, as we're going down this journey of, of, of understanding why the empty tomb is so significant of, a, of an evidence, the Romans would have not wanted Jesus' disciples to come and steal the body. The, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, wouldn't have wanted Jesus' Jesus's disciples to steal the body. Because if they would have stolen the body, then according to them, according to the leaders, they said, that the second lie will be worse than the first. And so we, Rome said, we want to make sure that they don't come and steal the body. So what are we going to do? We're going to put this big stone over the tomb. We're going to set a seal, a Roman seal on the, on the stone, meaning that it's, it's a marker that was, def, it was placed by Rome, by the, by the military of Rome, that if that seal was broken, then whoever was guarding that tomb was going to be liable to death because they allowed that to be broken. And they set a guard, which would have been between 20 and 30 soldiers, 24 hours a day, guarding that tomb. And yet, it still came up empty. It still came, we just read it in Luke 24. It still came up empty. In spite of the fact that you had 24-hour Roman soldiers guarding, guarding that tomb. Now, what did they say? These two soldiers, we read Luke 24. They saw two angels, dazzling apparel. Where did they go? They... They went and talked to somebody. They went and talked to the authorities because they were scared for their life. I'm on guard. I'm watching a tomb. It's empty. Now, they, they're very fearful for their life. So look at, look at what they said. Look at what they did. Matthew 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they, they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Wow. Isn't it interesting? A lie proves the empty tomb. A lie proves the empty tomb. Why did they lie? Why did they have to lie? Because the tomb was empty. You're not going to lie about something that didn't happen. Right? If, if, if Jesus was still there, they wouldn't have no need to make up a lie. But the proof that these soldiers go to the Sanhedrin, they go to the Jewish authorities, and they make up a lie, proves that the tomb was really empty. And this is a great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the only people that would have, as I said earlier, that would have wanted the tomb to be empty would have been his disciples.
So let's think about that. Could the disciples have pulled off stealing his body? Let's go back to the, to the disciples. What happened when Jesus got arrested in the garden by Roman soldiers? Roman soldiers came and arrested. Judas betrayed. What did the, what did the disciples do? They took off. They said, we're getting out of here. We're not staying here. They were afraid. So do you think those same cowardly, fearful disciples are going to go to a tomb guarded by Roman soldiers for 24 hours a day and attempt to roll a two to 3,000 pound stone away from the tomb? Do you think that, that would happen? Mr. Leverance might would try it, but I know these disciples wouldn't, right? It's not plausible. These same disciples that were fearful for their life, they're not going to go and try to steal that tomb, steal that body. The tomb was empty. Why? Because Jesus rose from, from the dead. And even his enemies could not refute the empty tomb. They had to lie to cover it up. So that's the second evidence. The empty tomb is another evidence. He really died. The tomb was really empty. Thirdly, there's eyewitnesses. For 40 days after his resurrection, Scripture tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples. He ate with them. He touched them. They touched him. Do you remember Thomas? He touched the side in the hands. He ate. He had dinner. He, he broke bread with them. For 40 days, he appeared to the disciples. Look at the Apostle Paul's account of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul the Apostle is saying this, I received testimony of the resurrected Christ. Now I am reporting it to you as first importance that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. One time, over 500 people at one time. Most of them are still alive. What is, this is literal history. Paul's recounting history. He's saying, look, if you want to know the validity of the resurrection, these people are still alive. And here is a man that's writing this, the Apostle Paul, who after the resurrection is killing Christians, is killing the very people that he says for us to go, for, for the early disciples to go and talk to. He says, I've been ki- trying to kill these people. And if you want to know the validity, some of them are still alive. Which means that in literal history, there was an, a, a very early, early account and testimony of the resurrection of Christ that Paul the apostle is pointing the early church to. If you're skeptical, There was over 500 brothers that saw him risen at one time. The eyewitnesses. So let's look at some of these eyewitnesses. So the first thing is this. One of the theories of the 500 people, more than 500 seeing him at one time, one of the theories is that it was a mass hallucination. Seriously. People, because people try so hard to refute the history of the empty tomb, they come up with ideas like this. They say, all 500 of those witnesses that the Apostle Paul tells us that, that saw Jesus at one time, they hallucinated all the same thing. In science, people who study that will say that is, that is almost as, as impactful as the miracle of the resurrection. For that to ap- actually happen. That when you hallucinate and, and I hallucinate, we all have our individual experience. And so for more than 500 people to say the same thing that they saw Christ could not have been a hallucination. You know, there's another, there's another theory that's out there to try to, again, explain the empty tomb. There's a theory out there. There's a man, it's a professor uh, uh, that, that did his doctoral dissertation at Yale. And he did a debate with a Christian 
apologist, a, a Christian who defends the faith. He did a debate, and this professor, he did his doctoral dissertation on the resurrection of Christ, right? So he's going to look at everything in history, all the facts, all the evidence. And he's going to become Dr. So-and-so based upon his information and his study of the resurrection of Christ. And he doesn't deny, this professor did not deny that the tomb was really empty. He did not deny that Christ literally died. But do you know what, what he came up with to say why the tomb was empty? His literal explanation is that Jesus had a twin brother, a, a, a exact replica, right? An exact twin. That was his evidence. He says, and, and really what, what that tells you is, is that there's really no other plausible explanation. He really died. He was really buried. And he really rose. And people lied to cover it up. And, they're coming up, and they continue to come up with theories that Jesus had a twin brother, and Jesus' twin brother comes on the scene as they planned and appeared as Jesus. Some of, more of the eyewitnesses that really point to the validity of the resurrection was, was, was the women. All four gospel accounts tell us that women were the first ones to the tomb. So the gospel writer's job, listen, I want us to understand this. The gospel writer's job is to inform you of history, Right? They're writing down an account. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And I'm telling you, this happened, this happened, this happened, so you would believe in Jesus, okay? This happened, this, it's history. That's how it's written. They all led with women as the first people to, to testify to the resurrection. Why is that crazy? Why should they have not done that? Well, they shouldn't have done it because in Roman times, a woman's testimony was just a little bit greater than a common slave. In most court cases, a woman's testimony during that time would not be admissible in court because of the low view of women in that society during that time. So for these men, these disciples, fishermen and tax collectors, and a doctor, Luke, as we read, if Luke, a doctor, why would he lead with the testimony of women if he knows that that if I'm trying to convince people of the resurrection of Christ, why am I going to try to tell them the truth that it was women? I would... I would rather tell, Luke would say, well, I'd rather tell that Peter and John saw him. Because that's what happened, right? Peter and John ran to the tomb. And, and John, in, in his account, wanted us all to know, significant importance, that John beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> of all the things for John to put, he said, oh, by the way, when we ran to the tomb, I got there first. So all the, all the gospel writers, they led with evidence that would have been ridiculed, would have been mocked. You're telling me that women were the first ones to tell you that this is true? Here's another impactful eyewitness to the resurrection. How many of you here have a brother? You have a brother? How many of you think your brother's God? I don't think there's anybody here, right? You know your brother. You saw your brother in his underwear at one time, probably. You may have even taken a bath with him when you were a baby, right? What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God, that he was raised from the dead. This, is a, this proof is a powerful testimony. James, the half-brother of Jesus, it, we see it in the Gospels where he, he did not believe Christ. When Christ was declaring what he was declaring, he was a skeptic. But after the resurrection, the history tells us that James was martyred for his faith in the belief that his brother was the Son of God was God in the flesh and rose from the dead. He was thrown off the Temple Mount and stoned and clubbed to death. Josephus, Jewish historian, gives us that account. 
And look at James, the book of James in our New Testament. Look what James says. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Look what he starts his letter with. He says, I'm James, and I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, I'm a servant of my brother. He was a good teacher. He was a good man. He, I, he, I, I, I grew up with him, and, and he was pretty good. He never disobeyed, and, and, and he, always, he always was right, and he was never wrong, and you should follow his example. No, he says, I am James. I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, my brother lives on Central Avenue over here in Homa. I'm not going down on Central Avenue and knocking on my brother Andrew's door and bowing down before him as Lord and dying, dying for the evidence that he's Lord. No, I'm not going to do that because he's not God. But if he was God and he raised from the dead, right, that's the only way that you would ever look, that James would ever look at his brother and say that he's Lord, that he's God. It's powerful evidence. The last evidence before we get to the implications is that the early disciples go from cowardice to courage. So Jesus really died. The tomb is really empty. There were over 500 witnesses for 40 days, including the brother of Jesus Christ. And then these early disciples go from cowardice to courage. Look at Mark 14. This is the account, one of the accounts, one of the funniest ones I find, of the accounts of the followers of Jesus running away when he was arrested. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. These disciples were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they went from cowards to courageous. They went from those as Peter. What did Peter do when Jesus was on trial? And they looked at Peter and they said, you look like you, you look like you're, you've been around that guy, Jesus. You talk like him. You act like him. And what did Peter do three times? Ah, I've never known the man. Never seen him. I don't know him. Peter was a coward. He rejected Christ in the moment of Christ's greatest agony and pain. In the moment of his death, he rejected Christ. And one of the powerful proofs of the, of the, of the resurrection is that, is that just a few days later, just a little bit over 40 days later, Peter stands up. On the day of Pentecost, look what Peter says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter looked at the Jews in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, and he says, we know where David is buried. He's our patriarch. We know where he's at. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to to David that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, meaning Jesus, and he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And listen, they believed in the Messiah, but now Peter says that this Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's pretty powerful. The same one who rejected Christ three times, the same one who turned his back on the Lord Jesus, stood up in front of, listen, thousands of people. What happened in Acts chapter 2? Over 3,000 people got saved because of that message. He stood up in front of thousands of Jews who would have witnessed and heard of the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, they would have known where his body would, would have went. They would have heard the rumors that he was raised. And Peter stood up and he looked at him and he said, This Jesus, you crucified, but he's not dead anymore. He's not dead anymore. Would he have done that if it wasn't true? No. 
Would he have done it if the body was stolen by Peter and the other, the other disciples? No. Why? It could have been caught. It could have been found out. It's an evidence for the resurrection. I just want to say this, that all the disciples, all the disciples except one, all the apostles except one, and many Christians died for their belief in the resurrection of Christ. And I just want to say this, just because you die for something that you believe in doesn't make it true. Okay? Because some people will push back against that and say, well, hey, there's lots of people who die for things, right? They'll die for something that's not true. September 11, 2001, what happened on that day? Radical Islamic terrorists got into airplanes and they flew those airplanes into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon. They crashed one in Pennsylvania, right? And they did it. This is why the Muslim terrorists did it. They believed that they were going to be rewarded for their act of hatred and murder on American citizens. They believed that they would be rewarded for their act of hatred and murder. So they didn't die for their faith like the disciples died for their faith. They died in murdering people. How did the, the, the disciples that died for their faith die? They died because of an act of hatred and murder on them. Because they would not recant their belief in the risen Christ. You see the difference? It's a huge difference. They died. You can, we can believe in the resurrection of Christ because men and women, not only those who were the early witnesses, but throughout church history, have died for the revelation of the risen Christ. Would you, would you stand for your faith? The early, the early disciples of Jesus who were witnesses to his resurrection did not die for their faith in an act of hate or violence. They died from acts of hate and violence. So here's the conclusion. Jesus really died. History confirms it. His tomb came up empty. Not because of a plot from his disciples, but because he was raised from the dead. Over 500 eyewitnesses confirmed his resurrection and many of them were martyred because they were not willing to recant that testimony. So, we're going to transition from information to implication. Information to application. I just gave you a lot of information. Again, I want to remind you, just as I said at the beginning, if you're a skeptic and you still doubt, you haven't come to faith in the resurrection of Christ yet, I, I hope this message will cause you to want to investigate further. It's important that you investigate. I just want to say this too. It does take faith. The Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. It's not just our intellect that saves us. It's not just having rational information. The, the resurrection's a miracle. It is a miracle. Dead people don't come back to life. God raised himself from the dead. It's a miracle. Okay, so what are the implications on our life? I, I see two of them. There's obviously a whole list of them. I could give you 20 of them if we had time today. But y'all are hungry and it's 12.02 and uh, Jim, uh, Jim, Jimmy Champagne's Jim Belay is calling on my name. So I'm going to give you two. Because Jesus was raised, the power of sin and death has been defeated. Because Jesus was raised, the power of sin and death has been, has been defeated. So do you feel the power and the impact of sin and death in our world today? As, as I feel it and see it? Look all around you. The curse of sin and death is on full display every day. You, don't, you would have to be blind and deaf to not see it. You'd have to be in a bubble to not recognize it. It's everywhere. You watch TV. You, you interact with coworkers. You, you see the news. You see the political turmoil. You see the issue of COVID. You see all, all, all around us the results of the curse of sin and death. We see it everywhere. 
We see it in our bodies that are subjected to sickness and, and decay. Right? We're getting tired or we're getting weaker. We're, we're, from the moment of our birth, we're decaying to death. And we don't know when our time is, right? That is a result of the curse of sin, which ultimately leads to death. We die because we're all subjected to the curse of decay because of sin. We see the effects of sin on our society when the world around us, the culture, anti-God culture around us, calls good evil and evil good. Do you see that today? We also see it when spiritual leaders call good evil and evil good. Do you see that today? Absolutely. It's everywhere. We see the effects of sin and death when we lose loved ones unexpectedly. When people that we love, we, we hold dear, they get a diagnosis or there's a tragic accident. That's, those are the results. And so what do, what, what do all these things cause us to do? Causes us to groan. Do you groan with me as I groan, as I look around in this world? Look at Romans 8 say, says. It says, and not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning that we have the Spirit of God inside of us, we groan inwardly. Why? Because we are waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. This is the implication of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Christ, when we look at the world all around us, we ask the question, does cancer have the final say? Does death have the final say? Does sin and temptation have the final say? Does it win the final victory? The Apostle John, in his book called Revelation, he has a vision from the Lord. And he describes the new Jerusalem. Heaven and earth, the new heavens, the new earth coming down after God judges. And look what he says in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain the former things have passed away. This is the, one of the greatest implications of the, of the resurrection. Through the resurrection of Christ, we know that the pain and turmoil caused by the curse of sin loses its power in our life. Cancer and disease and sickness and tragedy and accidents and sin and temptation, they do not have the final say in the life of, of, of a believer because Christ was raised. He defeated the power of sin. You here today that are under the bondage and control of sin, if you will place your faith in Christ, sin can no longer have dominion over your life. You can be free. You can be free. And for those of you here today that you're not a believer yet, and you're still living under the grief and the pain of the tragedies in your life, you can be filled with hope today because Christ was raised. And if he is raised, then we can be raised. We can be raised. We can place our faith in his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the seal. It's the seal on the work of redemption. We talked about last week, it is finished. The resurrection sealed that that work is done. It's completed. It's God's seal of approval on the work of Christ on the cross. The penalty for sin has been paid through the cross and sin's power is destroyed through the resurrection. It's like this in 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where's your victory? Sickness, where's your victory? Disease, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Where's your sting? It's gone. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. Amen? First implication is because Christ is risen, the power of sin and death is destroyed. Second implication is the greatest implication of the resurrection. As we conclude here today, because Jesus was raised, he is Lord. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just our hero. Emulate your life after Christ. Yes, yes. Follow the ways of Christ. Live like Christ. Respond to people like Christ did. Be full of compassion and mercy and love. But if that's all you do and you don't bow to him as Lord, then you're missing the point of Christ. You're missing what he came to do. He didn't come to be any of those things exclusively. He came to display the love of God as the innocent son of God, to absorb the wrath for our sins and to rise from the dead in victory over sin and death. So that we could have that same victory. That's why he came. If Jesus was not raised, then he was just a good teacher who taught us how to live a good life. And he he did good things that are examples for us to follow. But if he was raised from the dead, then the only reasonable response is for us to worship him as, as Lord. Anything less, anything less is ignoring the significance of the resurrection. He's Lord. He's Lord. Do you remember Thomas? The Apostle Thomas, and you read in the Gospels, people give Thomas the title Doubting Thomas because Thomas doubted the resurrection. He didn't believe it. We're going to read an account here where it says plainly he didn't, didn't believe. But what I love about Jesus is that Jesus is not scared of your doubt. He's not afraid of your doubt. Actually, he comes out. Oh, this is so good. I mean, I love it in John 20. He comes after specifically for Thomas because of his doubt. He comes after those who have doubt. Don't be afraid of your doubt. Let your doubt lead you, let your doubt lead you to search for the truth. The truth can be found. You just have to search for it. Look at John 20. Now, Thomas was one of the 12. This is after the resurrection. And he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said, hey, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Can you believe it? He's alive. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, I love, the, just, I love how they recount history. They could have just said later, but they said what? Eight days later, because that's when it happened. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Isn't that cool? What did Jesus do? Jesus didn't have to, hey, I'm outside. <laughs> I want to come in and have dinner with you guys. No, he just kind of said, hey, I'm coming in. Why do you think he did that? I think he did it for Thomas. How do I know that? Watch this. So he comes in. He stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to who? Come here, Thomas. He came on a mission for Thomas. Put your finger here. Put it here. See my hands. Put out your hand, Thomas. Place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What did Thomas say? My Lord and my God, my Lord, and my God. Jesus said to him, have you, have you believed because you've seen me now, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen us and yet believe. 
I love that. If there's, if there's somebody here today, you're struggling with your doubts, know that Christ comes for you. And he says, look at me. Look what I've done. I've done this for you. Scripture affirms and history confirms that Jesus was raised on the third day. And we must follow in the footsteps of Thomas. And we must say, my Lord and my God. It's the only reasonable response to the resurrection of Christ. And as I conclude, I want to conclude with with our confession that we confess in Romans 10. This is the confession of Thomas when he says, my Lord and my God, this is what he's saying. This must be our confession. Romans 10, starting in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who confess, who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Stand your feet with me. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I'm going to ask you a question here today. Are, are, are you like Thomas today? Have you confessed If you confess the Lord as Thomas did, or maybe you're like Thomas before your confession, you have doubts, but but the Lord's stirring your heart this morning, and you recognize, you understand that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He took your place, and you see it now. The Spirit of God's opened your eyes, and you know, and you know that you need forgiveness of your sins, and you know you need reconciliation with the Father, and you see Christ for who He is, not just a good teacher, but the Son of God who was crucified and raised for your justification. If that's you here today and you want to confess Christ, as we read in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you want to confess Christ today as just a symbol for, be, be, between you and God, would you just slip up your hands? Just say, yes, that's me. I want to confess Christ as my Lord. Is there anybody here today that wants to do that, that wants to confess Christ, wants to repent and turn and confess Christ? Is there anybody? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to close in prayer. And if, if that's your confession and you want to confess Christ and you want to be born again, we're going to meet you there at the welcome desk. And I have two books for you that you can come to the welcome desk and you can let us know that you're confessing Christ today. And I want to give you two books. One of them is called What is the Gospel? It's a book that goes into further detail that, from what I explained about the gospel of Jesus Christ so you understand what you're confessing. And then secondly, as a believer now, we're called to grow in our in our faith, to become more like Christ. And there's another book called Training, How Can I Grow as a Christian? Two great small books, great resources to help you on your journey. Can I pray for you today? God, I thank you. I thank you for your work work today in our life. God, you're, you're such a good God that you pursue us as you pursue Thomas. God, even in our doubts and our fears and our and our lack of faith, God, you run after us, you pursue us, and I thank you that there were those here today that confessed Christ, and I thank you for us as believers who have already confessed, Lord, I pray that it would just embolden us even more to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so people can be born again. Let us be bold witnesses as Peter did in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Let us boldly proclaim that this Jesus God has raised, and let us speak it with 
compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I love you. I'll see you next week.